Hello, listeners. This is Chris Miller, co-host of your all-time favorite podcast, Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. If you like what you hear and you want to lend your support, please go to patreon.com slash trrpod. And for as little as $1 a month, you can receive early access to new episodes as well as exclusive bonus content. That's right, it's a dollar. Come on, you have that much money right now in that weird little gap between your driver's seat and your center console. It's probably rattling around in the dryer right now. If you have a dog, there's a good chance that it has eaten that much change at least once in its life. So, for your beloved pet's sake, consider going to patreon.com slash trrpod and giving us that dollar instead. Your dog will thank you, and so will I. And now, on with the show. So, now I, I, I feel like Vinny's not alone, having been gelded, <laughs> removed from the breeding population. It was a freak microwave accident. <laughs> <laughs> that took place every day for 13 years, what? every time I was eating something up. Yep. I told you not to use the weed whacker naked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm they picturing... say wear a shirt when you cook bacon, but they yeah. mean pants, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, the problem is, is I only burned off half of it, so now I can play good penis, bad penis. Oh, oh. it's like Two Face. Yeah. I'm picturing Randy Marsh trying to get the uh... <laughs> the wheelbarrow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Just trying yeah. to get a little cancer, Stan. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Go go out there and get vasectomies, people. They're 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 good. They're good. There are too many. There are too many people. Um, Remember to uh, spay and neuter your podcasters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should say this was a vasectomy. This is not like me with a. Pair of kitchen shears in a manic moment. This, and thank you, Drew Carey, the old, mm. the old Lorena Bobbitt. Two mm. bottles of bourbon and a dare. <laughs> <laughs> that describes my entire career and, well, everything I've ever done in my career. Ultimately, like I know the John Bobbitt thing wasn't great for him at the time, but he did parlay it into like a decent amount of money. Yeah, and a, a career in pornography. What, what did they call it? Franken penis. Franken penis. Franken penis. Oh, John God. Wayne. Uh, or, uh, John. Yeah. John Wayne Bobbitt. Uncut. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> uh. I just want to know how mad you are to cut somebody's dick off and then like take it with you. And she, <laughs> she just like took it. I mean, well, we'll get to that. Something similar to that <laughs> later on yeah, in this episode. Uh, and speaking of the episode, this is Thieves, Ropes, and Renegades. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host Doyevsky. Chris Miller. Oh, well played, sir. I didn't. I don't think I've dropped any Russian jokes. I no, you haven't. I got my one in. I am Kyle Graper, and uh, unfortunately, Mike uh, Michael Arnett is not with us today because he did not get a vasectomy. Therefore, <laughs> <laughs> he uh, yeah he was on his way back. Uh, he was supposed to be back from the beach earlier today. And uh, we actually rescheduled this. <laughs> yeah, this, we are we were recording on a different day just so like we could, just so we could be sure that Padre was Mike's here. Vacation schedule, yeah. and then Chris, what happened? Uh, turns out whenever they were in, I believe it was, oh, where the hell did he say? It was somewhere in, in rural West Virginia. Yeah. Uh, might be getting himself where, a grandkid. Where these things always happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, apparently the road, the road network of West Virginia shook a grandchild loose. Yep. Um, so congratulations to Mike. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a pretty uh, good may, reason. Maybe for not being I, I haven't confirmed that like we are, we are actually having a birth now, but it's looking, it was looking pretty good when I talked to him earlier. However... Boy, is the universe a cruel, cruel bastard. I mean, the yeah, level is, of irony. This is true. Because we spent this irony. entire this entire series setting up a big finish There's for a Mike chart. in this series. It's yeah, we've had a we've had a dry erase board going we got for this a, whole we thing. Got a thing. 
And now he's not here to capitalize on it. It's so good. Uh, we are, however, joined once again by our good friend Keith Volhop from the Thrifty Whiskey YouTube channel. Keith, welcome. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here again. How's, how's it feel having complete control over Mike's mic? Uh, pretty good. I'm I'm afraid I might catch something, though. <laughs> <laughs> A grandkid? Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing. We've all been in close proximity to Mike. If there was anything we were going to catch off of him, we've all already caught it. Yeah, but if you've been mouth and then, and what close... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Keith, Keith, I don't know you well enough to answer that. Yeah. How do you think we all became friends, Keith? Yeah. So that was part of the, the initiation Mo- process. Yeah. Oh, it was more than friends. It's like getting, getting jumped into a gang. Welcome to podcast hazing. <laughs> so, Keith, you were not here for episode five. No, um, I was not. Uh, so I, w- I just kind of wanted to take a little time before we get into the subject today to get, get a few of your thoughts on the things we covered in, in part five. Well, uh, apart from... Uh, well, I, I know where I grew up, and I'm sure everybody had had the urban legend of Pig Woman. Apparently, she was in Russia as well, and <laughs> and uh, sliced them open pretty good. Uh, probably shouldn't have flashed his high beams or whatever it was that set her off on the urban <laughs> legend. Um, apart from that, um, I would have to say that you guys missed out on the Club Yar, which would have been a great name for a scandinavian metal club i think yeah or a pirate themed bar yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly i mean although i'm a scandinavian metal club is 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 a better proposition because with a pirate bar i guess the name yar is slightly low-hanging fruit right right um but i i think what was i i mean i'm not sure if it was touched on or not it just seemed like uh rasputin was getting more and more enthroned in power or something and just didn't give a shit anymore about what he could get by with, what he couldn't get by with. And he was like, you know, screw it. I'll, I'll try this. If somebody yells at me, I'll just stare him down um, and then leave. Um, I, I think we did touch on that a little bit to that point. And I don't think it's that mm-hmm. we were, we may not have, have said, you know, is he like drunk with power? I think the point being is that he was drunk. drunk. (laughs) He was was hammered. Yeah. But you're right. He was also like in like the truly rarefied atmosphere of society at that point. Right. Yeah. Well, he's also to a point where the consequences are very, very limited. Correct. By the system that's in place, it's, oh, well, they're going to send him away. But due to the circumstances of, of everything that was in place with Alexei's condition and the part he had to play in it was... It meant that any time he got sent away, he's just going to be coming back in a couple months when the when when the when the Zarvich has a has a literally hits a bump in the road yeah. and falls over screaming. Well, I mean, not only did he have the Zar buy the short and curlies, he was mailing him his short and curlies. <laughs> we can't confirm that they were pubes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like it. Okay, uh, yeah, uh, as much as I like Keith's, Keith's thoughts, uh, we're going to move on. So today is uh, part six. Uh, no, may I add, I, I do have some uh, half-eaten cake over here. If I, I, was not going anywhere, <laughs> I was not going anywhere near a cake until the episode was over. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to be sure. Oh, good. Now we're dealing with Volhop relics. <laughs> I don't, it's just, I don't, I don't want to... I don't want to use your used comb, man. I don't want to. 
So yeah, as the dog days of summer are coming to a close, as September approaches, the temperatures get cooler, the kids go back to school, and there are fewer guns out when the sun's out, so our Summer of Rasputin series makes its way to its conclusion. And it all comes down to this. After a story career of flim-flammery, improvisation, dumb luck, riding the social forces of the time, and no end of drunkenness, lechery, and debauched stupidity, we're finally on our sixth episode. But Rasputin has also gotten into a lot of those things, and uh, he had made too many enemies to ignore. Now, he had survived an attempt on his life back in Siberia, but in the midst of a cataclysmic war that put the very survival of the Russian Empire in doubt, many, many forces were at work planning the man's downfall. As incredible as his antics and his rise to power were, no period of Rasputin's life is subject to debate and legend more than the endgame. Now, the end of Rasputin's days will be shrouded in as much intrigue as any other time that had come before, and his colossal downfall and bad end would also be wrapped up with the bad end of so many others and the bringing about of a regime and time period that would have earth-shaking consequences that dominate our world to this day. Now, today, we will take a look at the story of Rasputin's final days, but also how the days of the Romanovs came to a close. And we'll examine the enormous legacy that the life and deeds of the man as well as the mystery that surrounded them has left, us, uh, has left us with. So before we go on, of course, you always want to give honor to our sources. Of course, there's Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs by Douglas Smith, Rasputin, The Untold Story by Joseph Fuhrman, Nicholas and Alexandra, The Fall of the Romanov Dynasty by Robert Massey, Nicholas II, The Last of the Tsars by Mark Ferro, and of course, once again, we can't recommend highly enough, Countdown to Armageddon. Dan Carlin's great series on World War I as part of his Hardcore History podcast. And, of course, a big thank you to Professors Alyssa Klotz, uh, Dr. Janie Burns, Dr. Erica Haber, and Dr. Michael Nyberg for their help on this series. So, gentlemen, any points of order to uh, cover before we get down to the final chapter in our story? Uh, I'd like to point out also, uh, when it comes to his legacy, I'm going to be leaning heavily on Edvard Radvinsky's uh, book the rasputin file yeah that's fair enough uh anything else kyle i know you have source material in front of you no i'll get to that later okay fair <laughs> enough <laughs> so by the summer of 1916 gregory rasputin was very aware of the fact that his life was under threat he spent the last year recuperating from the stabbing attack from kionya guseva the famed woman with no nose that had almost taken his life and required significant surgery and a lengthy hospital stay however guseva was one thing a mentally unwell individual driven by diluted devotion to a particular religious figure with whom Rasputin had been at odds. This was a one-woman crusade against someone she saw as the Antichrist himself, and, and there was no organization behind it. But it wasn't Guseva that Rasputin had to worry about anymore. As Rasputin's behavior became more and more outrageous, the period where the royal family stuck by Rasputin grew longer and longer, much to the confusion of the public at large, and the aristocracy in particular, who weren't aware of the full nature of the relationship and saw Rasputin's presence as a disgrace to the dignity of the imperial office, the more the threats against Rasputin's life began to gather. And I think we, we I think we do need to pause there for a moment and just reiterate that the population at large, including those in power, had no clue that he was useful to the ruling family. In the regard yeah, of exactly their son. Why. Yeah. Like we said, we we've said this before in the series, maybe 20 people, 25, 30 maximum, knew, and they were all sworn to secrecy. They knew that if they right. blew the lid off of that secret information, they're going to Siberia. It wasn't 
and it I mean it was so secretive that like not all of the security guards for the family knew. No. It was only the security detail for the children because that was the interchangeable one. Mm-hmm. And as we see today, if there need if there has to be an explanation, but you don't have the explanation, you create your own. And none of those worked in his favor. Conspiracy theory loves a yes. vacuum. Misinformation loves a vacuum. However, it's it's to the point now where I, it, it's it's less about confusion, and now with the advent of World War One, there's an existential threat to the Russian state that that Rasputin now provides. I think it's not it it, it, it it's away from the realm of curiosity and annoyance and about the dignity of the office of the czar and now it's about the very survival of russia of russia itself so letters recovered in the 1990s found evidence of a plot within the secret police to end the life of rasputin in the fall of 1916 and this one is a little bit ridiculous the secret police were working with a priest named father martimian who had befriended rasputin as an agent of their body to gather intelligence on his movements and it was suggested that tsarina alexandra could be convinced to grant rasputin a holiday that would involve a long train journey to a series of monasteries as sort of a highly luxurious and recreational pilgrimage. However, on that journey, Father Martimian was to wait until the train was passing over a bridge or viaduct, and when the time was right, he was supposed to throw Rasputin from the train, hopefully killing him with the impact or drowning him. However, nothing came of this plot because Alexandra didn't grant him the leave to go because she felt she needed Rasputin in Petrograd. This wasn't the only organized plot on Rasputin's life involving those working in government. It's known today that there were dozens of ministers, Duma members, military officers, and government functionaries who, especially in light of the war not going very well, saw Rasputin as a colossal national security threat, and they were trying to figure out a way to end his life while not at the same time betraying the trust placed in them with uh, in them by the Tsar. Now, this became abundantly clear for a lot of reasons. The first was the media. The tabloid press was all over the place with and pretty bluntly saying, hey, somebody's going to kill Rasputin really soon. And talk of Rasputin's end was all over the public zeitgeist. Everybody's walking around on the streets going, I wonder who's going to kill Rasputin? Because the guy's definitely going to die. It, it, I mean, you have a, a shift of the language. It's, what the hell's wrong with this guy? To I wonder who's going to be the one to take him out. And, it, it, I mean, betting houses were taking tickets on how Rasputin would meet his end, and newspapers were conducting polls, popular opinion polls, to that same end. Speeches were being made in the Duma that went far beyond just criticizing Rasputin's presence and outwardly began to call for his removal and downfall, including a speech from November 16 delivered by Duma member and ardent royalist Vladimir Purishkevich. Quote, I permit myself to say here from this tribune of the state Duma that all evil proceeds from those dark forces, from those influences which are headed by Grishka Rasputin. I turn to the Council of Ministers. If for ministers duty is above career, if you are in fact a united cabinet, then go to the czar and say this can no longer be. This is not a boycott of the state, gentlemen. This is your duty before the sovereign. Go to the czar's stavka, throw yourselves at the sovereign's feet, and ask him to permit you to open his eyes to this horrific reality. Ask him to rid Russia of Rasputin and the Rasputinists, big and small, no, longer, no matter how mighty they are. Believe me, gentlemen, I know you think as I do. I feel that all of Russia is repeating my very words before you, everyone without regard to party. May Grishka Rasputin no longer be the leader of life in Russia. So Rasputin soon received a letter, an official government letterhead, although without any named agency or office, from a group who simply signed the following 
at the end with the Avenger. Quote, Our fatherland is in peril. There is even talk of concluding a dishonorable peace. The very fact that you receive coded telegrams from Stavka proves your great influence. Thus we, the Chosen Ones, ask that you arrange matters so that people are granted ministers responsible to them and that the State Duma is reconvened so that our country is safe from ruin. If you do not comply with our orders, we shall kill you. No mercy shall be shown to you. Our hands will not shrink as did Guseva's hand. Wherever you go, death will follow you. The die has been cast. And it wasn't just the Russians who had their eye on Rasputin and opportunities to take him out. Every single foreign intelligence service that was operating in Russia at the time had a file on this guy. The British and French especially were keen to keep close tabs on Rasputin, and their reasoning for doing so was a big one. If Russia stayed in the war, then their presence keeps millions of German, Austro-Hungarian, and Ottoman soldiers occupied. Rasputin can compromise, their ability to can compromise their ability to stay in the war, and if the Russians back out for any reason, especially on one that may be driven by Rasputin, then all those millions of soldiers can then be turned towards the Western Front, Italy, and the Middle East and North Africa, putting millions of Allied soldiers at risk. If an opportunity to take out Rasputin, or at least counter his influence, was available, I doubt these services would hesitate to take it. And this does include the British Secret Service, who mm -hmm. are far and away the best at this stuff. Now, they probably the also kept the file on him because he was like cool and like did fun stuff. Yeah, and he a little was proto Bond villain, <laughs> <laughs> a little inspiration. Yeah, for it, it's there's this bearded, possibly magic man that won't keep his dick in his pants when he goes out to eat. <laughs> so and that, he just like potentially taking down the Tsarist. Yeah. Like, sure, let's go for it. So that uh, <laughs> that Kingsman movie that came out. I did, know, was I last did watch. Year. Not I watched, great. I watched the Rasputin their, part. Their Rasputin part is great. It's, they did a really, really neat funny. interpretation of him and what happens to him. And yeah, it ties back into, you know, like a fantasyful version of British Secret Service like where he's he's doing like karate but it it's very it's like dance karate. It's a very like Bolshoi. <laughs> <laughs> It was, and it's Peter Stormare, who's yeah, just fabulous. Yeah. No, they did a. It was it was a fun interpretation. I, the movie itself wasn't great, but that. But he knew it, it was a really neat way to deal with his character. Exactly what it and was inspired. Doing. Like they 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 really did go into like his historical depictions to like obviously super heightened, but right. It's supposed to be very over the top, and it's like that scene is very funny. So the German spy network in Russia was also keeping close tabs on Rasputin. Not necessarily thinking that they could get him on side, but they knew what he was think. But if they knew what he was thinking and what his movements were, then he could be manipulated into helping to drive Russia out of the war and give the Central Powers the edge. Or potentially useful for them decades later. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> I that is what we call foreshadowing. So even the American intel. I'm I'm just wondering if maybe the 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 German intelligence knew he had an in with the Tsarina who's related to Willie. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting point. I I don't know. I don't know because that that, seems... that relationship pretty much ended. Mm -hmm. Yeah. True, true. And she was very, very devoted to Nicholas. Yeah. Right. I mean, whether or not they realistically thought they might have an opportunity, I, I can't speak to that. I haven't seen any evidence to that. But I... There are a lot of documents in the, from the German intelligence, military intelligence service about Rasputin because they just see they see a weak point. They right. see a, a way that they see a means by which they can possibly shift the war effort against the Russians, which for the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians was going pretty well anyway. 
But Russia still has a hell of a lot of manpower. It's a hell of a lot of ground to cover. And if you can get, you don't necessarily have to knock them out of the war if you can get them to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And we will come back to that point. And even the, so even the American intelligence apparatus was keeping an eye on Rasputin because even though we had yet to join the war officially, the U.S. was making a gold mine off of loans to the Allied powers, Russia especially, and making another gold mine off of all the war material it was selling to those countries, and they too would probably be happy to engineer Rasputin's end if it meant keeping the gravy train flowing. And Rasputin knew that his days were numbered, and that number was probably pretty small. It's said that he spent his last few months uneasy and aggravated, pacing his apartment, quote, like an exhausted wolf that knew it was being hunted. In a letter he wrote to his family in late November of 1916, he, he stated, quote, My dears, a disaster is threatening us. A great misfortune is drawing near. The face of Our Lady has darkened and the spirit is disturbed in the calm of the night. This calm will not last. Terrible will be the wrath, and whither shall we flee? It is written, Watch, for ye know neither the day nor the hour. This day has come for our country. There will be cries and blood. In the great darkness of those griefs, I can now distinguish nothing. My hour will soon strike. I am not afraid, but I know it will be bitter. I shall suffer, and it will be pardoned to men. I shall inherit the kingdom, but you will be saved. The road of your sufferings is known to God. Men without number will perish. Many martyrs will die. Brothers will be slain by their brothers. The earth will tremble. Famine and pestilence will reign. Signs will appear to men. Pray for your salvation. And, though the, and through the grace of the Savior and of her who intercedes with him, you will be consoled. Grigori. Now the final time that he saw Nicholas and Alexandra all at once, they met for lunch. And when Nicholas asked Rasputin for his prayers, he instead turned to the Tsar and said, This is not the time for me to bless you, little father. This is the time for you to bless me. His entire attitude had changed, almost in a surrender to the inevitable, but his final letter to the Tsar, written on December 12, 1916, reads less like a surrender and more like some sort of defiant curse, with an element of, if I go down, you are all coming with me. It reads, quote, I fear I shall leave life before January 1st. I wish to make known to the Russian people, to Papa Tsar, to the Russian mother, and to the children what they must understand. If I am killed by common assassins, and especially by my brothers, the Russian peasants, you, the Tsar of Russia, will have nothing to fear for your children, for they will reign for hundreds of years. But if I am murdered by boyars, nobles, and if they shed my blood, their hands will remain soiled with my blood for 25 years, and they will leave Russia. Brothers will kill brothers, and they will kill each other and hate each other, and for 25 years there will be no peace in the country. The Tsar of the land of Russia, if you hear the sound of the bell, which will tell you that Grigory has been killed, you must know this. If it was your relations who have wrought my death, then none of your children will remain alive for more than two years. And if they do, they will beg for death, as they will see the defeat of Russia. See the Antichrist coming, plague, poverty, destroyed churches, desecrated sanctuaries where everyone is dead. The Russian Tsar, you will be killed by the Russian people, and the people will be cursed, and they will serve as the devil's weapon, killing each other everywhere. Three times for 25 years, they will destroy the Russian people, and the Orthodox faith and the Russian land will die. <coughs> I shall be killed. I am no longer among the living. Pray, be strong, and think of your blessed family. This final letter 
would be far more prophetic than anybody at the moment I was going to say, thought. good thing he was wrong about that. <laughs> it's interesting, too, when you're going to do some math later. Three times 25 years. We'll get back to that, though. It just makes me wonder, was he being more prophetic, which is possible with him, or was he more or less like reading the crowd? Maybe. I, he, I, I think he'd proven himself to be pretty astute at reading people and uh, the politics around him, even though he would you know, get lost in a bottle. Well, by this point, he knew he was he, fucked. He knew he was yeah. fucked, and he knew the country was fucked. Yeah. Right, but I mean, the, the part about, you know, well, if it's the peasants that do it, then everything's fine for you guys, but Well, because not, not that long before, a peasant had almost done it. True. It's, it's interesting. I don't know if he knew exactly who was going to do it, but he, he must have known that there were people within... The aristocracy that wanted I mean, by and I mean, large, Rasputin was incredibly popular amongst the peasantry. But yeah, he was right. the mouthpiece of mm-hmm. the peasantry. He was one. I mean, now he was wealthy, but at the time, like he he was a peasant. I mean, and yes, a peasant woman did almost kill him, yeah. at least attempted to murder him. But because she believed that was in the best interest of yeah. one of the elites of someone in power, it was an Archimandrite. Also, ironically, not very popular though amongst the urban populace. Mm. Like the urban working, like the factory workers, they didn't like him. That probably has something to do with exposure <laughs> to tabloid newspapers and things like that. I wonder if that was affecting the way and if they there saw was him. anything between. I, I don't. I don't know the like the the socioeconomic uh, climate of Russia in the early 1900s. But well, then you failed every all of us, everyone listening. <laughs> but I, I also believe that there there's always been a, a pretty big gulf, regardless of you know where we are. Uh, Globally, between urban and rural. And I'm sure that has something to do with it. And I also think, too, the crowd that he hung around with, the elite crowd that he hung around with, it's more or less somebody had to tell him, I heard this from so-and-so, that they were going to try and do this, you know. Yeah, I mean, he he had his, his fans. He still did. He had the rascals. He had, you know, this kind of crowd that he'd surrounded himself with. He kind of helped hand pick a lot of the later advisors for Nicholas and Alexandra. It's, so he had his ear to the ground a little bit. Yeah, he had bit. his finger on the pulse of what was going the on. The man yeah. had acolytes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, a good many of them. I want an acolyte. Like, that'd be so cool to have an acolyte. I thought that's what Kyle did. Mm. No, Kyle's a sodomite. That's different. Ah, hey. there we are. <laughs> So, while there were likely several conspiracies going on that were intended to bring about Rasputin's end, one in particular stands out because of who was involved. The main organizer was one Prince Felix Yusupov. Now, Yusupov was a nephew with the Tsar by marriage and was young, only 29 at the time. He came from one of the richest noble lines in the Russian aristocracy, and his family owned mass amounts of land, mines, plants, factories, and oil fields, almost all of which were being used to produce goods at a premium for the war effort, which was inflating... Uh, Yusupov's coffers quite nicely. Thank you. Now, Prince Felix had a, had an interesting life. He'd studied forestry and English at Oxford University and had attended with a full staff of servants and was known for his party boy ways, even amongst the elite party boys of the Bullingdon Club. He owned a menagerie of pets. He enjoyed smoking hashish. He was heavily into the cult, even by Russian aristocrat standards, and he was considered to be an expert dancer of the tango. He became good friends with an English student named Oswald Rayner, who would go on to, wink, wink, lead the British secret intelligence effort in Russia during the war. Now, Yusupov, also frequently cross-dressed, 
and was known for being a complete Lothario and not very picky with regards to gender as far as his sexual interests were concerned. He had affairs with Russian ballerinas, English antique stealers, Italian musicians, and French racing drivers. Now, Yusupov had been impassioned by the Russian media and by speeches in the Duma against the influence of Rasputin and became absolutely determined to do something about it. And given that he wasn't all that keen on going to the front because he was an only son and thereby exempt from mandatory military service, not to mention rich as fuck and could buy his way out of it, he saw an opportunity to aid, uh, to add his efforts to Russia's existential struggle. He also believed Rasputin to be a German spy, and also his fandom of the occult led him to believe that Rasputin was indeed some sort of supernatural creature who was exerting magical influence over his relatives and liege ruler. Was it Yusupov that said that Rasputin was responsible for the cholera outbreak? Yes. It was what, like poison food, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't just him that was saying that, but he, he but, bought into that theory. Yeah, yeah there, was a, there was a big cholera outbreak, in, especially around St. Petersburg at this time. We, we haven't really covered that in our story, but yeah, the, a lot of the media, a lot of the aristocracy, they were going, yeah, Rasputin did it. I mean, do we know he wasn't drunkenly stumbling in the kitchens and shitting into the water the supply? Yep. I mean, spilling a big, hilarious, like, cartoon bowl of cholera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, he could have been, for all we know, but it is, well, in the same way that that something happens in the world and people automatically go... It was the Illuminati. It was the one world government. It was whatever. People were taking that tack with Rasputin. Yeah, like when George Soros fucked that bat and we all got COVID. Correct. Mm. It was a pangolin. Yeah, Yeah. I'm I'm surprised it wasn't able to defensively curl up into a ball before he got to it. There was also a a lot of tension between Yusupov and uh, and the Tsar in that he refused to enlist mm-hmm. whenever the royal family, everyone of age, did. Yeah. Like, including the daughters. They were nurses. Yeah. And it really it really chapped their asses that Felix just decided to like hang out in St. Petersburg or like go somewhere where the front was not. Like where there yeah. wasn't a war. He was still traveling. And and for the most part when yeah, when we say go to the front, I mean these guys aren't down in the trench. They are the very de- definition of what we refer to as a remf. But it's like it's just yeah, but like whenever Felix was traveling yeah. during wartime, it, it's not because he was in the Duma. No. He was just traveling and hanging out. He, he was, was just, just going hanging on out, vacation. Living a life of leisure. Yeah. You know. well, let's see what Greece is like. There's no trenches there. Yeah. So shame about Italy. Yeah. Now make sure the Germans don't come over here into Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, def- I'm defending Cab- I'm defending Cabo San Lucas against yeah. the German invasion. So uh, Yusupov allied himself with a Duma member named Vladimir Purishkevich, who we'd mentioned earlier, uh, a military officer named Sergei Sukotin, and he also allied himself with Grand Duke Dmitry Mikhailovich, the cousin of the Tsar and one of Nicholas's closest advisors. Now, with this seeming affirmation that he had both the crown and the military on his side. Yusupov set a plan into motion. Now, he was casually acquainted with Rasputin, despite how much he didn't like him, and he would send, Ra- and he would send Rasputin an invitation for a little get-together at Yusupov's place to discuss spiritual matters and the healing of Yusupov's bad back, where Rasputin would then be fed poison in his drinks and confections. If the poison didn't work fast enough, then they would just shoot the guy, playing music as loudly as a gramophone was able to in order to cover the sounds of Rasputin's demise. Now, once he was dead, they would toss the body in the river and let it drift out into the Baltic Sea, hopefully never to be seen again. And so the stage was set for the final act. 
On the 16th of December, 1916, the 30th of December under the modern calendar, the day started off very badly for Rasputin. It began with a phone call from an unknown source and an unfamiliar voice that threatened his death. And the mail he received that day, a large stack of which he had to go through pretty much every morning, it contained a much larger than usual number of death threats and messages calling for his mortal end. Now third, a close associate of his and a member of the Rascals, a guy named Simonico uh, Bacadze, had attempted to kill himself with a gunshot to the chest earlier that day, believing that his life was forfeit and not wanting to be tortured and killed by his enemies, which he, in fact, later would be by the Bolsheviks in 1919. So by midnight, when Prince Felix arrived to pick Rasputin up in his chauffeured car, Rasputin was in need of a relaxing good time. Now, when they arrived at the Yusupov Palace, what had been a bare cellar had, during the course of that day, been dressed up with tapestries, fine furniture, various curios, and a table loaded with tea, cakes, biscuits, and wine. Now, the gramophone was gently playing a little hit at the time called Yankee Doodle. Over and over and over again, on repeat, all night. For hours. I probably would have checked out, too. I would have drank the arsenic wine. Yeah. <laughs> so, Sukhoten had, before... Rasputin's arrival donned rubber gloves and grabbed a box of potassium cyanide poison, which, by the way, in 1916, you could get at just about any pharmacy anywhere. And uh, he sprinkled some of it into the cream filling layer of Rasputin's favorite dessert, rose cakes, before replacing the tops and then pouring a cyanide solution they made earlier, like its cooking show, into wine bottles meant for Rasputin's consumption. So Coton then tossed his rubber gloves into the fire, which filled the room with an acrid black smoke, which then had to be ventilated out. Uh, so you already have these Ponzi Ridge boys who were about to commit their first murder, fucking it up royally. Basically filled the room with cyanide gas. Yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. aerosolized, correct. Pretty much. So shortly after... And, and there were just a couple of them, like, sitting behind a curtain. Yeah. It was, like, waiting, <laughs> listening to, like, Shh. like, hopefully he dies. Oh, to crap, be fair, he sees my sh- yeah, the whole time. Yeah, to the, be fair, usually when time. Rasputin comes to a room and there's people behind a curtain, he's gonna lay his pipe and get some photos so, taken. Yeah, something, so like, something is bound to happen. It, you might have like, seen that and be like, "Oh, from my right parties. side, my balls look better from the right side." This this is sounding like totally Monty Python. Like, I see your shoes. It's, I mean, you're not. Far, here's the thing: you're not far off. Yeah. So, shortly after midnight, the car with Yusupov and Rasputin arrived, and while the other conspirators waited upstairs, the prince and the monk settled into the furnished cellar for some refreshments and chit-chat. Now, a moment of alarm first happened when Rasputin at first refused the rose cakes and wine, saying that he was a little sick to his stomach, but after a few minutes, he happily accepted some wine, and pretty soon accepted the cakes as well, because we all know what it's like to get drunk hungry. Uh, And he was soon happily swilling glass after glass of Madeira and shoving cakes into his mouth. Now, the amount of cyanide poison should have had, should have, it should have killed him within minutes because they gave it a, they didn't just put a, a few little bit, they gave it a very liberal sprinkling, apparently. And what I understand from this is the reason why they were so confused is because they didn't put it in the wine, they put it in the glass. Yeah. And he drank, he simply drank from a different glass. Yep. Like he just, they, or whenever they handed him one, he just took a different one instead of the one that was pointed towards him. So, but even the, the but stuff just, on the cakes should have killed him in a couple minutes. There's also some discrepancy as to yeah. whether or not he ate cakes. Because his family said that he, doesn't, he didn't eat sweets. He didn't like desserts. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I think it was his daughter. 
who said it, it said like that's impossible. He it, he like he doesn't eat cake. Yeah, there's like also it. there's also a lot of other. It ruined his buzz. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't eat cake. It's cheating. <laughs> we all know this. <laughs> there are also a lot of other accounts saying, "Oh, I saw Rasputin here, and he was eating everything in sight." Like so. Yeah. It was it was pretty well like, it, it, talked it, about that he had yeah. a sweet tooth. Yeah. This is uh, it, this is also where history is wrought by the victors yep. because mm-hmm. like the guy who could tell you what he ate ends up not being able to say a whole hell of a lot. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So this is yeah. straight out of the Princess Bride though. You know, well well I knew they gave me cyanide. I just took some all my life, so I was immune. Well, yeah. and there's a there's a thought that that might have been why he was still upright, is that yeah. he knew there were so many people looking to kill him, the Greek, he started yeah. dosing himself. Right, the, the yeah. Greek, Greek philosophers would take hemlock all the time. Yeah, because yeah. you yep. can, in fact, build a tolerance to cyanide. Yeah. That's why I take a caplet every morning, you fuckers. <laughs> Guys, we're going to have to rehash our plan. He didn't look at me. I'm, I'm just going to play Yankee Doodle. I'm thinking <laughs> we'll just go from there. <laughs> Put Yankee Doodle on the gramophone and just shoot Kyle in the head. Yeah, let's, yeah, we'll figure it out. Good luck building but- bullet immunity, fucker. <laughs> what uh, what 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 tier of the Patreon is Kyle's snuff film? Three dollars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so this, sorry, one dollar a month, guys. So the amount of stuff being so damn cheap. So the amount of sign I put. <laughs> <laughs> Keith just gave me his debit card. <laughs> so the so yeah. So you the don't have to do that, Keith. You can simply do it from your phone. <laughs> so the amount of cyanide in the cake should have killed Rasputin within minutes, but more than two hours dragged on without any seeming effect on the mystic. He did appear to get progressively. How mad would how, could they? They're just standing there in the corner. Well, we're going to get because right, they, they didn't have a plan for this. No, we're going to plan. We're going to get into how Yusupov was reacting. Be dead. So <laughs> yeah. So Rasputin did appear to get progressively more intoxicated, and then around two a.m. he became quiet and started to slump. However, as his head lolled about, Rasputin suddenly perked up when he saw a guitar and said to Yusupov, <laughs> "Play me a song." Hey. So Yusupov obliged, followed by. Another song, and then another song, and then another song. It was Please. just Yankee Doodle over and over. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not the only one he knew, but it's all I could think of. But every time he has to replay it, it's a lower key. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a Yankee Doodle. Hey, Yank. Yank. <laughs> anyway, here is Wonderwall. <laughs> so, you see, now Rasputin had consumed enough potassium cyanide by this point to kill multiple people. But all that happened was what usually happened to him on a night out. He just got progressively more and more hammered. And then around 2.30 a.m., Rasputin again went quiet and began to slump. And Yusupov leaned forward in his chair, tensed up, waiting for the moment where the mystic, where the mystic would breathe his last. However, Rasputin made a final effort to down the rest of the wine in his glass. And with that, he perked right back up again. <laughs> and suggested that they go out into town to find some girls. Yeah, he wanted girls and brandy. Yeah. He was like, oh, all the wine's gone. I told you we should have played O Canada. <laughs> <laughs> now, incredibly on edge, Yusupov listened to Rasputin complain a little bit about having a hard time swallowing, but all he could do was sit and wonder why the hell all of this cyanide was having no effect at all. Finally, on the verge of a nervous breakdown, Yusupov momentarily excused himself and went upstairs, retrieved Sakotin's revolver, and he returned down to the cellar, just walked up to Rasputin, who was... Now on his feet and drunkenly amusing himself by admiring a rock crystal and silver crucifix, put up the revolver and fired a single shot. The bullet entered Rasputin's left side of the chest and penetrated his stomach and his liver. Now Rasputin screamed and collapsed onto the bearskin rug and lay motionless, blood spreading from the wound. 
Now, the other conspirators ran downstairs at the sound of the gunshot, and a doctor in company with them declared Grigory Rasputin dead. Now, the conspirators then drove back to Rasputin's apartment with Sukhotin wearing Rasputin's hat and overcoat so as to appear to, appear to anyone watching that he had returned home from Yusupov's place. Now, Yusupov and Purushkevich had stayed, toasting their success and congratulating themselves on having saved Russia from ruin and dishonor. However, Yusupov just... I don't know. He just... He got a feeling. And then he went downstairs to make certain that Rasputin was indeed dead. He felt for a pulse and felt nothing. Then, however, he noticed that Rasputin's left eye and cheek were twitching. Suddenly, Rasputin's eyes flew wide open. The, quote, quote, the green eyes of a viper fixing me with diabolical hatred, Yusupov would later write. He shot to his feet with fear, and in Yusupov's own words, quote, With a sudden violent effort, Rasputin leapt to his feet, foaming at the mouth. A wild roar echoed through the vaulted rooms. He rushed at me, trying to get to my throat, and sank his fingers into my shoulder like steel claws. Now this devil, who was dying of poison, who had a bullet in his heart, must have been raised from the dead by the powers of evil. There was something appalling and monstrous in his diabolical refusal to die. I realize now who Rasputin really was. It was the reincarnation of Satan himself, who held me in his clutches, and would never let me go till my dying day. But yet, with a superhuman effort, I managed to free myself from Satan's grip and ran back upstairs calling to Purishkevich. So, yeah, Yusupov ran upstairs, he called on Purishkevich for help, and then the door on the stair landing came flying open and a bleeding Rasputin, stumbling and sometimes crawling, roaring with rage like a wounded animal, made a break for it into the night. Now, Purushkevich also drew a gun, and both men chased after Rasputin, firing as they went. Purushkevich fired four shots, one of which managed to hit Rasputin in the back, penetrating his right kidney and lodging next to his spine. Yusupov's diary would later write that he then beat Rasputin with a small two-pound dumbbell that he happened to take with him. I don't know why he decided to grab a dumbbell for the chase, but no evidence survives to suggest this is actually true. However, it didn't really matter, because Purushkevich walked up to Rasputin, who was now lying on his back, on the ground, in the snow, and fired a single shot, point-blank, into Rasputin's forehead. Finally, the mystic was dead. The other conspirators returned to find that the man who, had ended up not, who ended up not being dead when they left was now, for sure, well and truly dead. So after putting Felix Yusupov to bed, because he had become overwrought and with the whole situation and had fainted... <laughs> wrapped the body in, heavy linen, in a heavy linen floor covering and shoved it into their car. They drove off to the Bolshoi-Petrovsky Bridge and unceremoniously dumped the body into the Neva River and got caught by the cops. <laughs> However, because of their rank, they pulled the cop aside and said, we just killed, and admitted, we just killed Rasputin. It was for the good of the country. If you know what's good for you, walk away. Or the body was supposed to end up in the river. Now, word had gotten around within a day that Rasputin had disappeared, and a police investigation was launched within 24 hours, along with several headlines that reported the death of Rasputin at one of the most aristocratic homes in the center of the city. It didn't take long to piece together what had happened. On January 1st, 1970, 1917, two days after the murder, two workmen noticed blood on the railing of the bridge and found a boot on the ice below, prompting police to search the area. It was because they took his clothes off, Yep, kept the boot... The boots and I think his overcoat. 
and after they threw him into the river, which it should be noted was completely frozen over. It's the end yep. of December right. in, in Russia. Russia. Yeah. Um, instead of taking them and burning them or throwing them in a dumpster somewhere, <laughs> they just, just they're like, the oh, whoops. And then just threw them over the bridge onto the ice. Like the boot was sitting on, the, on ice. the ice. Right. Yep. Let's hide them on the glacier. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Rasputin's body had indeed gone downstream towards the sea. For about 150 yards. Yeah, I was going to say, it was, you, could, you could still see the yeah, bridge. Because it got caught under the ice and stayed right where it was. So Dmitry Kosoratov, the city's senior medical examiner, conducted an autopsy and found that he had suffered three gunshot wounds, including a fatal one to the forehead, a slice wound to his left side, likely from sharp ice, and yet, weirdly, no evidence that he'd been poisoned. Which, again, clouds the story. What is true? Also, no water was found in Rasputin's lungs, so he was definitely dead when he went into the river. So what happened with all the cyanide? Now, we've already brought up the possibility that Rasputin didn't actually ingest any. That he actually did refuse the cakes. That Yusupov is making something up here. But it's also been suggested that the effects of the cyanide may have been delayed or diminished for one of two reasons. One, Rasputin was missing quite a bit of his digestive tract after the stab wound he'd received a couple years earlier. And two... Wait, does that mean I'm immune to cyanide? Fuck you guys. Only (laughs) one way to find out. Only one way to find out. Uh, Everybody at home, Kyle doesn't know this, but we're going to be conducting a little bit of an experiment during the break. I hope you like rose cakes. (laughs) So Honestly? Yeah. So two... Do you have wine? Well, that's the thing is... (laughs) Keith did bring a coffee, his award-winning coffee cake. That's why I'm not going anywhere near a fucking cake till everybody else eats it first. Yep. <laughs> I am not going to be the last one. I eating already that cake. had a slice. So. Yeah, but you could have been doing but, the immunization right. thing yeah. that we were. Talking We've already about. established that one can build a tolerance. Yeah. Nice try, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but there's also a second possibility. Rasputin was such a colossal alcoholic that his ability to produce stomach acid was compromised, and this is important because cyanide takes effect. Because it reacts to your stomach acid mm-hmm. and depends upon that reaction to make its way into the bloodstream. You need to have a functional GI tract for cyanide to affect you. Yeah. So we should run that experiment. Yeah. And <laughs> just remember the the one of the things that, that you always hear in medicine is the solution to pollution is dilution. And the fact that this man was just consuming so much shit yeah. that his system just didn't know <laughs> what to do. Yeah, so... It's like, oh, that's new. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, it's, whatever this this weird thing is sucks a little bit. Ah, oh, fuck, here's more, here's more wine. <laughs> so, <laughs> we haven't even figured out the first thing. Where's all this brandy coming from? Oh, uh, make it like acid. <laughs> <laughs> so, the legends of Rasputin didn't stop with his death. Now, many have said that he was still alive when he went into the river, that they still hadn't killed him by that point, despite a bullet through the brain that it wasn't even the conspirators that did it. What it was that killed him was Russia itself. But medical evidence doesn't support that. Now, the conspirators had done a piss-poor job overall of hiding both the evidence of their crime and their intent, probably because they'd spent weeks walking around bragging to anybody who would listen about how they were going to be the ones to kill Rasputin. It's also kind of fucked up that Yusupov took a couple months to really like ingrain himself it, like, he became one of Rasputin's acolytes. Yeah. Like, he it, he knew what he was doing. Like this was not something that they cooked up like 
Spurt in a moment. couple of hours. No, like this was the long con. It was like two or three months. Well, he, he worked to get, this, to, yeah, he he worked to get the czar's cousin on mm-hmm. side. He works to get a, a, mili- a senior military officer on side, a member of the Duma. A member of the Duma. A ranking member of the ranking Duma. member of the Duma. A, a, a renowned St. Petersburg doctor. Like, he took his time with this. He saw this as his chance to become a storied hero of Russia. Yeah, and he thought if the history reason, books man. would speak of him like as, a war hero. Yes, the savior of the Russian Empire. The reason why he did what he did is because he said with Rasputin gone, Nicholas would now maybe have a chance to listen to the Duma, listen to you know any of the, mm-hmm. any of the, the people that are not necessarily his co-conspirators, but people like that. Honestly, I just don't think he liked the guy. Yeah, it was like, oh, I'll, you know, we'll we will restore the the prestige of the of the czar. I just don't. I think he just didn't like him. Yeah, and I, I, and, I, and I get it. As an elite, I wouldn't have liked him either. It's also possible that Yusupov wasn't thinking that far ahead. Yeah, he wasn't renowned as a very intelligent man. That's the thing. He was renowned renowned as a very fun dude. Very footloose and fancy free. He wasn't known for his intellect, so and, and as, it helped that. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, as as uh, pretty much witnessed by this whole debacle of an assassination attempt, <laughs> the oh. dude that they shot in the chest and died got up and ran away. <laughs> yeah, yes. and they just chased after him, blasting. Can you imagine that? Mo- if that does play out, how how Yusupov described, where he's just like right next to Rasputin's face, just like. Are you dead, Rasputin? Are you dead yet? And then the <laughs> eyes, just, and then the eyes just go boom and pop open. At that's terrifying. They said that Yusupov did react with a very high pitched scream. It, and again, like Yusupov frames this as essentially good versus evil. Yeah, it's obviously a very stylized account. It's... I do believe that they shot Rasputin and he collapsed. Yeah. I do believe that he got up and ran away. Well, I mean, clearly ran away. They shot him in the back. Yeah. <laughs> There's, yeah. You wouldn't shoot a guy in the back if you were sitting next to him playing Yankee Doodle on a fucking guitar. <laughs> but, While it's playing on the Victrola. <laughs> but, like, did did the doctor... And now in stereo. Yeah. Ah, hey, did, did the doctor pronounce him dead? Maybe he saw the guy on the ground. He was like, yeah, we fucking got him. Yeah. But he, you shot him, and then he fell down in a heap, like... It's usually a good sign for it is, shooting. It's possible that the doctor phoned it in, too. Just didn't even get down to take his pulse. Just took one look at him and went, yeah, he's gone. He's, yeah, you got him. You shot him in the heart. Well, he's dead. He's eh, Nope. Yeah, so, yeah, the connection between the co-conspirators and the death of Rasputin was made almost immediately. And while no one ever faced criminal charges, despite Tsarina Alexandra wanting all involved in the conspiracy to be shot, Yusupov was banished to his estate down by what's now the Ukrainian border. Kurishkevich was banished to military service in Romania, and Grand Duke Dmitri took a military command in Persia. Now, this exile may have saved Yusupov's life, as he and his family were able to escape the revolution Mm -hmm. and set up a life in France, where he spent many decades slowly frittering away what was left of the family fortune before dying as a poor man in 1967. Rasputin's body was buried on January 2nd, 1917, at a church just outside the uh, the Alexander Palace, and a ceremony attended only by the imperial family and a few of their closest relatives. Rasputin's wife and children, who were in St. Petersburg at the time, were forbidden from attending. In March of 1917, soldiers exhumed Rasputin's body and burned Rasputin's remains so that he would not become a rallying point for supporters of the Tsarist regime. Because even though Rasputin may have been dead and gone, there's still a lot more to this story, which we'll talk about after we take a short break. 
Tired of listening to whiskey tubers talk about whiskeys you'll never see? Want to hear reviews about whiskeys you can actually afford? How about something you can truly find on the shelf? Are you looking for honest, unbiased feedback about the whiskeys in your budget? Then join us on YouTube at Thrifty Whiskey. Here at Thrifty Whiskey, we do blind tastings of whiskeys that are $30 and under. Bourbon. Scotch. Irish. Indian. And even Canadian. So catch us at Thrifty Whiskey. And until then, may the winds of fortune sail you. May you sail a gentle sea. May it always be the other guy who said, this drink's on me. Welcome back. Before we uh, proceed with the Estonia fact of the episode, I just want to acknowledge the fact that we undertook a little ritual in the interval, and we managed to summon a Michael Ernett. I believe that's Iron Michael Ernett. I think you're ahead of the game. Don't blow the lead, but we'll get to that. I, I don't know why you insisted I had to shed my blood to bring the Padre, but... Well, it's, you had to shed your blood because um, I, I, I think well, it's the blood that, of a virgin, Kyle. Well, uh, well, and, and we had to make <laughs> listen. No, we listen. We, no, you had to shed your blood because we had to make a new you. Yeah, that's uh, that wasn't for the ritual. That was just for <laughs> the Kyle blood golem. Yeah, that was for <laughs> that was for whatever which which one we have in the tube right now. Kyle Sigma Prime. Or you whatever could have at is. least made it bigger if you were going to bring me back as a blood golem. <laughs> That's, I want to clone people, but I want to make them a little bit shorter yeah. every time. Um, yeah, just to, just to cue you in, we had a few technical difficulties, uh, so we have actually a fair distance of time between when we recorded part one and when part two is being recorded. So in the uh, intervening weeks, Michael Ernett has returned home. He is yes, back man. among us, so we, are, we have a full roster, including Keith, here in the kitchen. So on with the Estonia fact of the episode. Did you know, everybody, that Estonia celebrates two Independence Days? Let me guess. One at, is this from point, the at this point, I definitely know that. <laughs> yeah. It's, no, actually, surprisingly, one is not from the British, but they celebrate two Independence Days, and it's from the same people. It's the one part of the world the British didn't care about. Yeah, they're yeah. they're one of very few countries that that can say that they never had their independence from France. <laughs> Britain's number one export. They don't like cabbage, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think they do actually. I, I Some believe of them so. Do. I mean, it's, it's, it's the that Baltic region is very cabbage forward. Yeah, but uh, yeah, Estonia's first Independence Day is on the twenty fourth of February. Uh, it's known as National Day uh, or Independence Day, and then the second one is on August twentieth, and they call that the Restoration of Independence Day. Uh, February twenty fourth, nineteen nineteen, is when Estonia first gained its statehood, and August twentieth, nineteen ninety one, is when Estonia. Gained independence from the Soviet Union. So both of these are celebrating independence from the Russians. From the goddamn commies. Well, the first time. Actually, no, you're right. Both yeah. times. Yep. Both times. Had to do a little history math there. But, uh, yeah. What a fascinating fact, Rob. Thank well, you. Happy double Independence yeah. Day, our dear, our dear Estonian listeners. So, proceeding with part two of our episode. Now that Rasputin was gone, it seems like there may have been... One problem heavily exacerbated for the royal family. The health of the heir to the throne, the Tsarevich Alexei, but at the same time a laundry list of problems appears to have been solved for the imperial family with the death of Rasputin. The reason for so much public distrust in the imperial office and a source of so much confusion about the Tsar's motives was gone. The opportunity to increase public trust in the imperial family was there, sort of, but conditions in Russia were deteriorating so quickly that there may not have been anything that the Tsar could do, and soon Alexei's hemophilia was going to be the least of the royal family's problems. And they lived happily ever after. <laughs> so, Russia was in dire straits. 
Its one major success in the war, the Brusilov Offensive, had bogged down and collapsed, and most of the gains made that summer had already been lost. Russia had lost several million soldiers, and a large part of the worker and farming population was away fighting or on garrison duty. There were mass shortages of everything from grain to eggs to coal, and hyperinflation was beginning to take over. In 1916, the average price of food was inflating at an annual rate of nearly 800%. A loaf of bread in January of 1917 cost 30 times what it had when the war broke out. The Russian railway system, critical to supplying food to the population, was crippled by a particularly harsh winter and poor maintenance. Of 20,000 locomotives available at the start of the war, less than 8,000 were serviceable. And the number of railway, railway wagons had been cut more than in half. Alcohol had been prohibited to un, uh, increase productivity and morale, but instead, it had the opposite effect. Yeah, who would have thought? Shocking. Yeah. 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 Who would have thought that morale would go down whenever you when, can't have any alcohol? Yeah. Social unrest, inc- unrest increased, and it also deprived the Russian government of significant alcohol taxes, and Nicholas made the idiotic decision to counteract the lower state income by removing vital food programs that delivered badly needed provisions to the neediest people. So the, so basically what you're saying is they increased taxes. No, they decreased taxes. They lost Okay. They lost the alcohol taxes, and to counteract that, they got rid of all the emergency food programs that were keeping people from starving. So think, Nicholas was Reagan? It, I mean... <laughs> yeah. It's... Hey, we'll trickle down. We'll trickle down. <laughs> trickle down. Trickle yeah, down. Yeah, well, well, while other nation systems instituted did, did systems. Did his Kissinger sound like, oh, that was, never mind. That was Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> it was Nixon. Were no, close. he was kidding. Look, <laughs> Kissinger was still kicking around at the time. Did he sound like an American? No, he's, I, I have an he's idea. High voice. He was still German. It was probably still just Kissinger. I feel like he yeah. was also around. Like, he was he was wait, advising Rasputin. Wait, wait, is Kissinger Rasputin? This is not a productive area of conversation, <laughs> Mr. President. So, while other nations instituted systems of rationing to help the war effort and stave off the starvation of the civilian population, Russia instead took more of a eh, "good luck" approach, and it estimated and it's estimated that during the winter of 1916 to 1917, up to half a million Russians died of starvation. Now, the Duma, the Russian legislature, was clamoring for reforms, as were members of Nicholas's cabinet, but he staunchly refused to enact anything or sign off on any reforming legislature. Revolutionary fervor and simple desperation was at the point of bubbling over and being 500 miles away playing soldier at the front, Nicholas had no sense of how bad things were getting. Finally, on the 23rd of February, things came to a head in Petrograd. People in a breadline soon began to break into shops and bakeries in order to loot what food they could, and soon word got around and people left the factory production lines and began to demonstrate in the street, chanting, Down with the war, down with the czar. Some police shot at the demonstrators, and the army was called up to put a stop to things, but the police action escalated things into a full-blown riot, and the soldiers who were in the streets, most of whom were on the verge of starving themselves, either fired over the heads of the demonstrators and retired against the orders of their officers, or in many cases, simply shot their officers and joined the rioters. So you're saying cops, escala- you're saying cops escalated the riots. I've never seen that happen. Yeah, never once. Not at all. Impossible. Yeah. But people love authoritarian, like, jack-booted people telling them what to do and then firing at them. Especially when you're super, super hungry. Right. Yeah. Until there's an election. But the cabinet... Ooh. 
Ooh. Where, where are we going with that one? <laughs> Spicy. Spicy. Who'd have thought? <laughs> I didn't know that you were going to come back as Jello Biafra. Like, I didn't know that's where you were going. My favorite photograph of the last five years is definitely someone clubbing a cop nearly to death with a Blue Lives Matter flag. Well, that was during the sightseeing tour. Yeah, that, yes. We're not talking about... Okay. We're talking no, about no, riots no, here. I, I, oh, yeah, that's true. That was I, just I, a nice I, afternoon I, on the I, mall. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guys. I, I thought we were talking about Penn Avenue uh, in East Liberty when you guys were there. Oh, yeah. That was fun. Yeah. That was, that was, a, that was a day. Anyhow... The cabinet begged Nicholas to return to the Capitol and make a public statement of abdication, but Nicholas had been misinformed that the situation was fully under control and responded with letters accusing his advisors of being alarmist and defeatist. Over the next two weeks, the situation continued to devolve. The riots and demonstrations grew, more military forces mutinied and joined in, and Nicholas's belated attempts to enact emergency powers and use the army to suspend the Duma failed. Soon, all of Petrograd's military facilities and fortifications, along with their weapons, were in the hands of the revolutionaries, and the law courts and the police headquarters had been burned to the ground. Members of the Duma had decided to perform a provisional government alongside many of the revolutionary leaders in order to restore order, and issued a joint statement demanding Nicholas's abdication from the throne. Finally, on the 2nd of March, 1917, Nicholas relented and offered to abdicate in favor of Alexei. But this abdication wasn't accepted by the provisional government, and as such, Nicholas then offered to pass the throne to his reform-minded brother, Grand Duke Mikhail. Now, Mikhail declined to accept the throne until a nationwide vote was taken through a provisional representative assembly as to whether or not to maintain the monarchy or to move on to a republic government structure. Now, this never happened, and so the uneasy provisional relationship between the Duma and the Revolutionary Councils, or Soviets, continued. Now, the Germans were working to transport more revolutionaries like Vladimir Lenin and Alexander Kerensky into Russia in order to put an end to their war effort, and Nicholas was trying to decide what country would let him travel there in exile. Now, he couldn't get permission from the French, who were decidedly not wild about royals living in their republic, nor from the British, who were afraid that the Romanov's presence would set off a workers' uprising in Britain as well. Now, eventually, an agreement was reached where the royal family would be held under house arrest at the Alexander Palace just outside Petrograd, still with a full staff of chefs and servants, and they had their privacy inside the palace, although a strict military perimeter was maintained, and the royals had very little freedom of movement otherwise. I totally understand why countries would not want them. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. But I, I'm... Like, but this is strictly like the population, like the, 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 the at-large populace of a country. I get why you would not want them, but... Whenever and this is something we had talked about relatively early in this this series, how they were cousins with Wilhelm. Mm -hmm. She was right. of of the British monarchy. Like it's I they knew everybody knew everyone. Yeah. Like it was yeah. so. Oh, no, so he can't go to Germany because they are still technically at war They're with at Germany. At war at with point. Germany. So Germany, Germany, Germany as a country does not want them. Wilhelm yeah. had offered to take them. So I kind of yada 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 the whole thing. What ended up happening was George V wanted to welcome, wanted to bring them in, and he got voted down by Parliament. Mm -hmm. Both the House of Commons and the House of Lords voted no. With a supermajority, essentially. But what about Vicky? She was dead. Wow. <laughs> yeah. She was not. She died this, in 1901. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. She gone. I mean, they'd only be able to get her opinion with a seance. <laughs> they, they got out Jesus ye Christ. royal Ouija board. Yeah. <laughs> Forgive me for not knowing. Bring 1776, out. motherfuckers. That's the old year I need. I told that teaching lady only three letters I need are U, S, and A. 
Break out the Royal Eight Ball. <laughs> so the provisional government. Yeah. The fun one or the one I had in high school or middle school or grade school, honestly. I don't know. At this point, eight balls weren't weird. They were still put in Coca Cola. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. See, when, you could get a prescription you... for it. Yeah, right. They put it in eye drops. <laughs> oh, what's, the, what's the meme? Uh, you have ghosts in your blood. You, you should, should do coke cocaine about, about it. it. Yeah. <laughs> Simpler time. So the provisional... No wonder they got yeah. so much shit done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why everyone was so goddamn motivated to accomplish more at 25 than I... Well, I won't before I die. Yeah, by the way, the yeah, reason fainting couches were a thing is not because everybody had delicate constitutions. It's because everybody was just walking around falling over because they were all on laudanum. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. So the provisional government tried to keep the war effort going, but in July, a new Russian offensive completely failed so disastrously that more Russian soldiers deserted than were killed or wounded, and the killed or wounded numbered nearly three-quarters of a million, and many hundreds of regiments fell into outright mutiny refusing to obey orders, and often killing their officers and joining the workers' councils. Now, Nicholas and his family were moved from the Alexander Palace to a small dacha, or country mansion, outside of Tobolsk in western Siberia, ironically the closest significant city to where Rasputin grew up. Now, the uneasy working relationship between the provisional government and the Bolsheviks broke down, and on October 25, 1917, in what became known as the October Revolution, the Red Guards, the military force of the Bolsheviks, seized the Winter Palace and disbanded the provisional government, either with exile or with the bullet. Soon, the new Bolshevik government, under Vladimir Lenin, issued an order to stop fighting the Central Powers and accepted a humiliating peace agreement called the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which surrendered vast swathes of Russian territory, including Poland, Finland, the Baltic States, Ukraine, and most of the Caucasus. This allowed Germany and Austria-Hungary to mostly ignore the Eastern Front now and focus their efforts against Britain, France, and Italy. Early 1918 would see large offenses by the Central Powers, and the balance of the war would almost be tipped back their way, but they couldn't quite do it before the arrival of two million American soldiers tipped that balance back. Now, during this same period, the Romanovs had many of their privileges and subsidies removed and were soon confined to the House. They did, however, believe that their efforts to uh, that the efforts of remaining monarchist factions or the governments of their allies in the war, would end up with a rescue or a diplomatic agreement for their release. But the truth was that most of the royalists had their own problems to attend to, and the governments of France, Britain, the U.S., and others had pretty much lost interest in the Romanovs and what was happening to them, knowing that they would likely never again be a force in global politics. I wonder how many loyalists were actually left. In the country? There couldn't have been very many. There were an awful lot that managed to get out to France, that managed to get uh, right, out to Right, yeah, Britain, that's a, get like out the to people places, who were left. They, they saw the writing on the wall. They were not locked in a mansion yeah, in they Siberia. Skedaddled. They skedaddled. It, there were and not. And even then, like because there wasn't a monarchy anymore, yeah. where is their political power? I can't give you a number, but I can tell you how many were left. Not enough to make a difference. No. Yeah. And again, like they have no power anymore. Now, now it, it, at the end of the monarchy, everything went to the Duma, and even <laughs> mm-hmm. the Duma lost a bunch of theirs to provisional governments. Yeah. Yeah, I would say at the most hundreds. Yeah, like yeah. not even not even capping not even capping a thousand. Anybody with the hundreds. ability to do something, yeah. So the rest of the psychodrama played out depressingly quickly. The Romanovs were moved further and further away from their allies into progressively smaller quarters and tighter security, <coughs> and into the hands of progressively more anti-Tsarist Bolshevik factions. Finally, on July seventeenth, nineteen eighteen, the royal family was awakened at two a.m. and told to get dressed to travel. The daughters and Alexandra were wearing dresses with some of the Romanov crown jewels sewn into them. And Nicholas carried an unwell Alexei into what he thought would be a series of cars to take them to their next place of confinement. Instead, the several Romanovs, along with the family doctor and three servants, 
were filed into a room with 10 armed Bolshevik soldiers. Yakov Yurovsky, the chief of their guard detail, announced that the Ural Soviet of workers' deputies had found them all guilty of counter-revolutionary activity and that they were sentenced to death. There's barely time for anyone to react before the firing started. Nicholas was shot several times in the chest and died in less than a minute, and Alexei and Alexandra were both killed instantly when bullets hit them in the head. Now, the four princesses were all hit, but survived the initial round of gunfire thanks to the jewels sewn into their dresses, acting as a primitive form of body armor. But the prone girls were all finished off with bayonets. The doctor and the servants were all shot multiple times, the doctor having more than 30 rounds fired into his body. The bodies were all driven to a nearby woodland, searched, looted, and then doused in lantern oil and burned. The remains were soaked in acid and then finally thrown down into a disused mine shaft. The bodies of Nicholas, Alexandra, three of their daughters, and their servants were found by an amateur archaeologist in 1979 and were eventually reburied on hallowed ground in 1998. God, there couldn't have been a hell of a lot left. Not oh, much. Oh, God, that's so impossibly fucking grisly. Yeah. I also can't imagine disliking someone that much. And it also gives a lot of, like, whenever whenever Bin Laden was killed. Yeah. The army's like, oh, yeah, you know, we, we recovered the body, then we chucked it into the ocean. Why? It's the same thing. Like, you'd think if well, you really wanted to make a statement about the Bolsheviks. Soviets at the time gave a very, very similar reason. You don't want a memorial. You don't want a memorial. You don't want anything totemic left of them. But this is also well, coming I... from the from the same, I mean, of course, it's a couple hundred years removed, but heads on pikes. Yeah. Crucifixion, like that's not that's that's not just what happened to Christ. Like no. crucifixions, and lots of people got them because you you wanted people to see that you people were flaying bodies in that point in that that part of the world up until they, just a couple hundred years beforehand. Yeah, they knew that the stomachs of the population weren't going to support that kind of brutality. No. They were fine with the royal family disappearing. The general Which populace is, didn't want to know how, Which, why. Wait, exactly. And, 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 well, and that's it. Anastasia's that's, corpse on a pike was not going to land well with the general population. <laughs> At what well, point exactly. did the Bolsheviks really give a shit about yeah. what the general population they, thought? Well, At that time, they did. Because the entire legitimacy they, for they their government at the time it, was right. the popular... They were... I mean, as you just said, the, the, the royal family had no yeah. supporters at this point. Yeah. Now, the Bolsheviks under, had the nation's support. Under... Stalinism, after it comes around in the mid-1920s, Anastasia's body on a pike. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. But, but, but that's, that's also the difference between Bolsheviks and Soviets. But it also sends a message, too, of, look what we did to these people in power. Look what we did to our own former royal family. What do you think we're going to do to you if you yeah. mess with us? Yeah. Exactly. I want to know what the fuck the doctor did. He was there with them. To catch he 30 stuck, rounds? He was loyal. Pushing he them vaccines. Rounds. <laughs> 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 Apparently, apparently, it was a New York City cop. It's big Spanish flu, man. They're pushing in the vaccine. <laughs> so we don't very tiny abacus injected into your blood. Yeah. <laughs> a small, a small Babbage counting machine. Oh no! Oh no! Oh god! Anyway, moving on. In 1981, Nicholas and Alexandra were both canonized by the Orthodox Church as martyred saints. But most importantly, culturally, the people that had allowed Rasputin to meet his end had met a very bad end themselves, and the idea of Rasputin's curse began to pervade the public consciousness, which only added to his air of legend, mystery, and darkness. 
Now, events in Russia would continue to spin out of control. A massive civil war between the Reds, the Bolsheviks, and the Whites, leftovers of the Royalists and the Provisional Government, would Why last... Why gotta be white? <laughs> <laughs> would last I don't know, until... we'll have to ask Kanye West about that. Yeah. I saw his new shirt. <laughs> yeah. Would, would la- the war would last until 1922, and it would Im- and involve the brand new states of Finland, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Estonia! As well you as did it, guys. That's your first Independence Day. <laughs> as well as many of the former warring powers of World War One. Like there were American soldiers on the ground in Russia at this time. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of them, but some. Now, uh, this war would be brutal. Costed another three and a half million military casualties and as many as six million civilian dead. Oh, I mean, it was a horror show. The level of violence was comparable, not the numbers, but it was comparable to the U.S. Civil War. I mean, in terms of just brutality against your your countrymen. Now, the Reds' victory would give rise to the Soviet Union as we knew it, as well as the ascension of Joseph Stalin and all the horrors and massive geopolitical implications that would follow leading up to this very day, showing that the presence of Grigory Rasputin had a direct effect on what we see in the news every day in 2022. Now, the cataclysmic historical events that followed the death of Rasputin have done nothing other than massively cloud the historical picture about him. The first big factor that clouds his story is the fact that of the people closest to him, who knew the actual reasons why they kept him around, were all dead or staying very damn quiet after watching the Russian aristocracy either get the bullet for their troubles or get scattered around the world. But more than that, you have so many competing forces trying to stick their oar in with their own narrative about Rasputin and why he was either an interesting man out of his depth or some evil Svengali mystic hell-bent on the destruction of empires. The Soviet Union painted him as a symptom of a decadent bourgeoisie, and indicative of the evils of religion and mysticism and what happens when wealth and state power are too concentrated among the wealthy elite. The anti-communists painted him as the reason that the Tsar's regime fell and blamed him for setting up Nicholas and his family, and thereby the old Russian state, for destruction. The Entente powers painted him as the reason they almost lost the war in early 1918, And the Americans mostly painted him as an interesting curiosity who helped bring about our great cultural bete noir from the years of the Cold War. I feel like that might be the most right. I feel like that might be the most correct out of any of them. Yeah. I have a theory. This guy is just so impossibly weird that he slots into so many different categories. Yeah. That's the thing that gets me about it. Like, maybe he was all of these things. Or... Maybe he was just a weird guy that just got himself into some hilarious capers. Yep. And it doesn't help either that so many of the artifacts of his life and his communications were... I love the fact that you used the word capers. I don't use it nearly enough. Neither do I. I'll write that. I'll make a note of it. But I usually just talk about Cabin Boy. (laughs) All of his communications, all of the artifacts of his life, they were all hidden behind the Iron Curtain for seven decades. And Western historians lost access to those who knew him best, which of course also is a an asset that disappeared over the passage of time. Now, what that leaves us with is a confusing historical picture, but one that is slowly becoming more clear as research access increases in the post-Cold War era, although global events of late have threatened that progress that such access provides. So what exactly is the legacy that Rasputin leaves? First, there's the media about him, or involving him as a character. Within a year of Rasputin's death, silent films about him were being produced, including ones where he was played by an actor with the fantastic name of Montague Love. And movies about Rasputin, or featuring him as a character, have just kept coming, from the period immediately following the war all the way through to the latest Kingsman movie, and the same can be said for television as well. He's been portrayed by actors like Conrad Veidt, Lionel Barrymore, 
Christopher Lee. Woo! Definitely doing an episode about him. In Sir the Christopher Lee. Right? Sir Christopher Lee. Uh, Gareth Froba of uh, Goldfinger fame. Tom Baker from Doctor Who. Telly Savalas of Kojak fame. John Belushi, although that was only for an SNL sketch. Alan, still counts. Yeah, still counts. Alan Rickman and Gerard Depardieu. There's even the animated musical Anastasia, which features a Rasputin who's back from the dead and seeking to eliminate the last of the Romanovs, whose main sources of power are advice from a little albino bat named Bartok, and a giant staff shaped like a dick that contains all of his evil magic. It, it has a skull on top, but it really does look like a dick. Doesn't yeah. he just disintegrate into green cum uh, when he dies? Well, depends on which version you watch, because the there was one where it's not green. It is just white, and I don't know why. I, I do know the reason why this happens, and it's it's for international releases. Yeah. Um, there are some, and it's usually the Chinese market, mm-hmm. uh, they don't allow blood. So the blood is digitized to white, which they're like, oh, that's going to be so much better, except... <laughs> in this case... <laughs> except, and this is almost entirely in cartoons. I know that... Um, uh, Japanese anime runs yeah. into this an awful lot because what are you going to do? Not sell it to China? There's a billion people who might want to buy your shit. Yeah. Except you got to make all your blood come, and it looks hilarious. Wait, so uh, in the movie in the movie in J- the Japanese release was the staff pixelated, but the white was <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, he uh, he just dissolves into a big old puddle of cum when he dies. Uh-huh. Anyway. The life of Rasputin and the role he played in the downfall of the Romanovs has been examined over and over again in nonfiction as well over the course of the last century in everything from long-form BBC documentary series to drunk history, and shows are constantly referring to him that range from The Sopranos to Seinfeld. And what's most important here is that it works. Pretty much everyone you talk to has some idea of who Rasputin is. Most people have seen those famous pictures where he just looks a little unhinged in the eyes, he has the long hair and the big beard and looks like a fucking goth overlord. So even if they don't know the story in full, they associate that image with someone sinister or at the very least intriguing. Now they've heard him called the Mad Monk or heard something about the effect of, to the effect of how he played a part in bringing down the Tsar and bringing about the Soviet Union. I mean, he's right up there with like Abraham Lincoln in terms of history's most recognizable faces. Do you think he just made that face for pictures or do you think he always like stalked around looking weird like that. I think he always stalked around looking weird. I think that's fair. Because there's candids of him, and it's it's the same thing. He's not looking directly, intently into the camera, so those like portraits have a quality all of their own, but he was walking around looking like a weirdo the whole time. And I'm so, on Rob's side on this. Yeah. And so, this overall cultural familiarity with at least the basis of his story is also used to sell fictional novels, manga, anime, comic books, video games... McFarlane action figures, role-playing games, professional wrestling, beer, a laundry list of theater and opera productions, and of Was course... Was there hentai? I, there must be. Sure, there probably is. <laughs> I don't know, a quick Google search will probably, probably yield some results. Yeah. But of course, there's also music. Metal bands have long used Rasputin as the subject of songs and album covers, and groups like Mastodon, Typo Negative, Teresa's, and Therion have gotten a lot of mileage out of Rasputin's deeds and image. But of course, no cultural artifact involving Rasputin has had a greater effect on the world of music than that of the 1978 hit Rasputin by Afro-German Caribbean Eurodisco legends Boney M. 
It's hard to find someone who at some point hasn't heard of Rob Rob Rasputin being the lover of the Russian queen, and television appearances frequently figured member Bobby Farrell jumping and dancing around in a black robe with a giant bushy beard and air-humping everything in sight. <laughs> uh, the song reached the top ten charting in 16 countries, and it was number one in Australia for eight weeks, longer than any other number one hit that year. What did the Russians think of it? <laughs> I mean, like, uh, if you want to go by, like, the Hasselhoff rule, they should be getting yeah. it just about now. Never yes, never charted in Russia, but did chart in East Germany. But I think that has a lot to do with just the proximity to Boney M's. I was going to say Boney M, but half of Boney M was German. Being West German, yeah. So, uh, and it also popped up to number six for a week on the uh, Billboard dance charts here in the U.S. earlier this year. And I forget the reason why. I know you Was it used in it Stranger Things? Because there's a lot of <laughs> mediocre music that's making it hard. Oh, my God. Yeah. I can't keep listening to Kate Bush, man. I'll tell you what. That I song did, has sucked for like 40 years. I did see Halsey do it last week, and it was pretty fucking good. I don't want either of those things. I don't want <laughs> yes, Halsey, yeah, yeah, and I really yeah, don't want Kate Bush. Okay, so it was TikTok. That's it why was it, TikTok, right? yes. Okay. So I'd rather have Bobby McFerrin. <laughs> but Don't I worry. Be happy. Be, be Rasputin. <laughs> be Rasputin. <laughs> so, things really came full circle, though, when on December 30th, 2010, in St. Petersburg, Russia, Bobby Farrell died of heart failure at the age of 61 in the same city and on the same date where Grigory Rasputin met his end. Now, what happened to some of Rasputin's kids is a mystery, but his daughter, Maria, the apple of his eye, escaped to France after the October Revolution and then traveled on to America, where she worked as a dancer and a circus performer. In her later years, she did several television interviews about her father before finally passing away in 1977. Is she the one who described him as, like, just an innately sexual presence? Mm -hmm. Like, she gave her some really cringy yeah. interviews. Not, like, not, not abusive, like, not towards her, but, like... Yeah. Like straight up was like, yeah, dad fucked. Yeah, dad was a real horn dog. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's uh, how I want to be remembered. It's like dad the son, it's like the son of the guy dick. who led uh, who led Children of God. Yeah, dad was a sexy guy. Yeah. It's oh, what he said. God. Yeah, what oh. he meant was dad was a horny guy. But like, anyway, we're, uh, I yeah. saw things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I saw things that you. So there's this jar, right? See again. Yeah. So what's incredibly clear, however, is that the story of Grigory Rasputin continues to maintain a grip on the public imagination more than a century after his death because of the sheer oddness of his character and the stories that surround him. In a time when conspiracy theories abound stronger than ever and storytelling is instantaneous and widespread due to the internet, the legends of the man and the theories about just what he was involved in and the role he played carry more cachet than ever. It's a great mystery story. Why did he manage to achieve the things he achieved? And we've managed in this series, I hope, to shed some light as to just why he managed to stay at the heights of power uh, and just how he managed to get there and what was going through his head while he did and just what forces at work were at work to bring about his downfall. All of that will remain a mystery to be dis discussed long after we're gone. However, Aww. one key element of the legacy of Rasputin remains, and it must be addressed, and that is the specimen in the jar. The Museum of Russian Erotica in St. Petersburg is in possession of a massive 12-inch dong in a big old jar preserved in formaldehyde, which the museum has claimed to be none other than the big old dick of Grigory Rasputin himself. Now, just what happened to Rasputin's baloney pony is a matter of legend in itself. I hate that so much. <laughs> it said that it... <laughs> I want my dick in a jar. No, I hate baloney pony. Yeah, it's baloney pony. worst fucking... 
<laughs> it said well, that uh, of, that's where Kyle's drawing the line. Yeah. <laughs> Not all these scatological did. jokes, yeah. the bestiality jokes. <laughs> and honestly, I'm inclined Salam- to agree. Yeah. Salami swami is okay. <laughs> that's fine. No, it's any, any heavily processed meat interpretation of this man's 16-inch dong. The charcuterie plate from hell. God. Now, it's said that after his death, a group of devotees unearthed his body and removed the penis, using it as a sort of religious relic in their devotions to the late mystic that contained magical fertility powers, and apparently it made its way to France, where many of these devotees fled during because the Because that's what you do when you have a day. You go to France. I mean, it worked for Ben Franklin. Yeah. <laughs> he he secured true. an armada and yeah. won the war. <laughs> Well, there's that. I want to do a four-part series on Franklin, but just the fucking years in France. Oh, you mean a seven-part series? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Now, from there, we have conflicting stories where one path has it staying in possession of Russian expats, even being hidden from the German occupation in World War II until it made its way back to Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Another story has the wayward Willie coming into the possession of Rasputin's daughter, who wasn't wild about the idea of a bunch of Aristo refugees praying to or her having her. Her father's genius. Just like, in general. Yeah. She wasn't wild about the idea of a bunch of blue bloods playing praying to her dad's disco sticks, so she kept the jar in her attic. And after her death, it supposedly ended up in the hands of an American collector who placed the winning bid in her estate sale. But his artifact, that he claimed was Rasputin's penis, was found to mean nothing more <coughs> than a slightly decomposed sea cucumber. Is that really fair to the sea cucumber? I've also looked at like, pictures of like sea dead cucumber. sea cucumbers and like, I don't know, man. Yeah. Like, uh, this guy got ripped off if it if it looked anything like the sea cucumber specimens I've seen. Now, what t- if his dick looked like a sea cucumber? And if he just anybody thought all <laughs> dicks looked like a decomposing sea cucumber, <laughs> like oh, it, it, it even has all the little it. knobs on it. Yeah. <laughs> so in t- yeah, that's how you know it's real. In two thousand four, for her yeah. pleasure. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, honestly, usually, usually when you look down there and you have knobs on it, and you're like, it, it's for her pleasure. It's because uh, you need to go to a doctor. Just saying. They got yeah. creams for that. You know? This was Padre's sex education corner. <laughs> everything's, everything's just so impossibly gnarled. That looks perfectly normal. <laughs> it's like looking into a mirror. It looks, like a, just, it looks like a tree branch from a fucking Tim Burton film. Yeah, and then he just raises his paddle for the auction. Like, I must have it. So it... <laughs> it, it, it sold to the man with the weird penis in the back. In 2004... <laughs> It just custom pants because it's so fucking. It's just a fucking. Oh, we're getting on. Okay, I'm putting this fucker back on the track. So in 2004, when the museum was opened by the man who was previously the chief of prostate research at the Russian Academy of Natural Sciences, so good. You can't give that to me. The chief of prostate research. Yeah. So, ass man. Yeah. (laughs) Obviously. The most legendary index finger in Russia. <laughs> so, apparently over $8,000 was spent in uh, to acquire the Johnson in a jar and to put it on display. Now, the director is quoted as saying, quote, Having this exhibit, we can stop envying America, where Napoleon Bonaparte's penis is now kept. Napoleon's penis is but a small mushroom. It cannot stand in comparison to our organ of some 30 centimeters. We did, we did look this up. And yeah. Napoleon's penis is still in New York. 
Uh, however, uh, the the French government refuses to like <laughs> acknowledge the penis. Yeah. So uh, all we know that for a fact that it is someone's penis. It's someone's penis. And it is like it's, but the French it's reaction not... is just to take a long drag on a galois and just go <laughs> that. No. That, <laughs> All right, guys, hear me out. That, hear me out. Hear me out. It's more mummified than anything, which is just deeply upsetting. Yeah. Like, I figured out how we jar. pay for our next five years of beer. We find a dead horse. <laughs> we put its member in a jar. We age the shit out of that jar, and we sell it to the fuck. I don't know who really likes the Polish. We sell it to the Polish and tell them it's George Washington's <laughs> dick. <laughs> Polish. Washington and, and, penis. And okay, I'm on. I got it written right. down. We're good. It's in the notes. So, well, and, and, and being Polish, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you. Would you want to own George Washington's penis? Absolutely. Aren't they the ones who have the American theme parties that I read about on the on the interwebs? <laughs> Wasn't it made of wood? I was just <laughs> <laughs> Talk and about a what, do you did, what do you think he did with that cherry tree way, after he chopped it down? By the way, did, 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 didn't Lizzo blow on it? <laughs> okay. People are so mad about Lizzo playing a fucking flute. Like, who gives a shit? Like, James, he doesn't need it anymore. Like, who fucking cares? He's been dead 200 years. Yeah, James Madison ain't he using it. He played it. So, however, I'm afraid I have to be the bearer of bad news. First off, the museum has been closed uh, due to its possession of. LGBT or Q erotica coming into conflict with Russia's god-awful anti-gay laws. And secondly... Future Florida. In 2014, the penis in the jar was tested, and the results are not good, gentlemen. What was billed as the trouser sausage of the world's most famous mystic is, in fact, nothing more than a garden-variety bovine penis. That's was, really rude to the cow. It was, it was bovine. It wasn't equine, right? No. No, I'm afraid... Shit. <laughs> Which would have been incredibly on brand. Yeah. What's <laughs> <laughs> a horse whisper? Send us running for the whiteboard. So, our most epic story we've yet told comes to a close. No, it doesn't. That's horseshit. Whose phone is that? Turn your shit off. <laughs> Jeez. That's my. Wow. Oh, boy, I didn't see that one fucking coming. Wow. Uh... Well, well, I just opened it and it said 28 is a nightmare. From Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> Three and a half hours ago. Get Turn a better network service provider. <laughs> and so... So the last two hours are horseshit. Uh, turns out, I have a quote from the man himself. Oh, God. Damn. You I found a, an original Rasputin quote. Dated. This is one for the history books, folks. This is big. From the 90s. Wait. From the 90s? Following the, ex- following the exaggerated reports of my death, I left the blessed soil of Russia. I knew a town in Italy, small, secluded, a place I could rest, a place I could regather my power. For more than 20 years, I lived in isolation, preaching on occasion to those brave souls who dared approach me, telling of the coming Ragnarok, the new age of the serpent, speaking as the prophet of the apocalypse. But mostly wrapped in silence as I listened for the voices that I had spoken to me under the river, listened and heard nothing. So I waited. Instead for some other kind of communication. I waited for a sign. A sign that came at last in the form of a small and cringing human. His name was Himmler. Uh, And he came to hire me. 
to take me to that land which was the ancient enemy of my beloved Pete Russia. To take me to Germany. What? Uh, okay, first off, I'd like to say this. Your Russian accent is immaculate. Secondly, <laughs> eat me. <laughs> Uh, what's 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 the what's the source of this quote? This is remarkable. Oh, this is the um, this is the um, historical documentary, historical uh, graphic novel uh, based off the words of Rasputin um, by a exceptional uh, historian, uh, Mike Mignola, called Seed of Destruction. Uh, really? Turns out he uh, he he, he um, brought a demon named Hellboy to the world and then got killed like seventeen more times. Oh, I see. And I'm pretty sure he just lives in the Baba Yaga's chicken hut now. Fascinating. God, history's incredible. Yeah, it, it, it really, it, you learn something new all the time. Oh, also, wow. like, I can't really dispute that but, one either. Well, Maybe he does live in the Bobby well, Yaga's walking oh, chicken leg wow, house. Wow. Well, let me ask or this. a pineapple does under it, the seat. Does the Bobby Yaga chicken hunt make good chicken? <laughs> it would just... <laughs> Now we know it's going to replace McDonald's in Russia. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. How did they not do that? I don't know. How the fuck did they not do that? Anyhow, the most epic story uh, we've yet Yaga's. told comes to a close. I hope we've told an entertaining story and one that has helped to shed some light on the life and times of both a man whose legend has far outgrown the facts of his life and on those of the most important people who put him where he ended up. I hope that we ended some, or I hope that we helped separate some fact from fiction, taught you some things you may not have known before, and cleared up some of the confusion around both a confusing life story and a confusing time period. It's been a long process involving many, many hours hunched over thousands of pages of written material and nearly 100 pages of writing. And we still have to deal with Keith. Yeah. Not to mention stacks of post-it notes, note cards, and quite a lot of nights where sleep had to die so the story of Rasputin could live. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. I want to once again thank the authors of our sources for their incredible work. And once again, highly recommend that you check out their books, particularly Douglas Smith, because it's honestly one of the best works of historical nonfiction I've had the pleasure of reading. I would also like to once again thank those wonderful university faculty who assisted in helping me gather and disseminate invaluable and hugely interesting research material. And most importantly, I would like to thank our friend and contributor Keith Volhop of the Thrifty Whiskey YouTube channel, without whom I don't think this series would have happened, uh, for his inspiration to cover this topic and for all the work he's done to come in and help us tell this story. And most importantly, thank you to you, the listener, from the bottom of our hearts for hanging with us for a long and grueling process that we hope you enjoyed. Yeah, it was pretty much an entire summer. Yeah, thanks for listening, yeah, everyone. Holy shit, it was. Yeah, happy, happy fall, go? by the yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> it's Halloween time. Okay, so serious no, question. No, no, uh, no, 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 Mick, no. Mick, Mick Baba Yaga's, what are the Happy Meal toys? Uh, a landmine. Uh, oh, God. A horse whip. <laughs> and, right a, and a... And uh, a... Butt plug shaped like a pineapple with the pineapple leaves facing upwards. Man, you had some. I was thinking like you came twigs, twigs lashed in the shape of a little person. I'm a master of improv, Chris. You don't know this. <laughs> I wasn't sure which which oh, level oh, yeah. of and the and the Blair Witch symbol made out of yeah. twigs that hangs <laughs> yeah. from a tree. Yeah, are we going are we going modern Russian interpretation? Are we going with old Baba Yaga shit? Like what is it? Oh, it's just like bones and fingers. <laughs> We can we yeah, can go with the it? modern There's Russian fingers inter- in the chicken nuggets, but it's entirely intentional. Yeah, they're ch- chicken fingers. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> just from a guy yeah, we named don't chicken. Do chicken fingers. What did you get? It's just a disembodied baby crying, and it never stops. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Chris, if they want to find us out there, where can where can people do it? If you want to find us, if you want to drop us a line, if you have any suggestions, much like Keith did, you can find us at trrpod at gmail.com. 
Uh, you can find us on Instagram at TRRPod. You can find us on Twitter at PodcastTRR. And you can go ahead and hit us up on any other form of social media, including, uh, what was the Donald Trump one? I forgot this joke. Oh, uh, Truth Social. Truth Social. Uh, until that one goes bankrupt, too. Uh, at Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Yes. Well, uh, this episode has taken so long to record that Elon Musk might end up owning Twitter again. Good times, man. Good Yay. times. So, um... I don't care who yeah. owns it. It just sucks. So. You know <laughs> <laughs> it shit ain't getting yeah. any better. But, uh, yeah, stick around, because next time... Um, well, before the next episode, we're well, we've taken some time. You, you know, here, you know what's you know what's happened. I haven't, I haven't been allowed to say my piece. Well, okay. So well, now, now you have been allowed to say your piece. You have elected not to to save them all. You still have yeah. bullets in the gun. So let me tell you about. Hang on, hang on, hang on. We're we're gonna get we're gonna get to yours. We're gonna get to yours as soon as we get ready yes. for our next one. But just to let you know what's coming next, we have, we're going from strength to strength. We're going from one of history's drunkest men to one of history's drunkest men. Uh, we're covering Iron Mike Malloy and that fascinating, incredibly stupid crime story. But we're also bringing you our Rasputin Roundup, a uh, little roundtable where we all sit around, kind of wrap this series up something proper so that this episode doesn't run too long. We're going to be releasing that as its own separate entity. Yeah, those are typically reserved uh, just for our patrons. Uh, this one will be available uh, to everybody. Uh, we hope in the future you jump on over to Patreon to get it, but we feel like after six episodes, it kind of necessitated that. Yeah, like, I think I so. feel like you guys kind of deserved it. Yeah, you, you, you earned a treat, the, everybody. The Cliff's Notes version? Yeah. So uh, with that, uh, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you, everybody, for listening again. Wait Thank you, Keith Fulhoff, for being here. And hold fast. My-